1 Kings chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Just as if some of you uh, may be using the um, sermon note sheets uh, and you may be using the, uh, the ticket home portion, you need to know that the questions that are on there for this week, the memory verse and the suggested resources are the same, are, are correct, but the questions uh, did not get changed from last week. So if you're looking for those questions, they will be online later this afternoon uh, on our church website and you'll be able to get those there. All right. First Kings chapter 18. You know, as you look through the history of the church, one of the most amazingly disturbing things that you see is how quickly God's people can apparently lose the faith. They can abandon Christianity. The Great Awakening, for example, was a phenomenal movement of God that resulted in many souls saved and many churches established. Yet not a hundred years later, those same churches had lost the gospel, they had lost biblical theology, they had lost ethical living to become Unitarian fellowships. The land of Germany, which produced Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church and the stalwart of the historic Christian faith, was also the same land that eventually produced Adolf Hitler and the fascism of the Nazi party. The reality that has been observed is that God's people are never but two generations from completely losing the Christian faith. Why? Because each generation needs to hear of God and believe for themselves. Therefore, it only takes one generation to assume belief in the gospel and a second generation to lose it all together. The same was true for ancient Israel. And this morning we are looking at part one of the Old Testament book of Kings and Part 1, 1 Kings or 1 Kings, begins by continuing the story of King David where it was left off at the end of 2 Samuel. We see David now at the beginning as an old man whose life is slowly fading away. Despite the plans of one of his sons to become the next king, David anoints his son Solomon to be his successor to Israel's throne. Solomon comes to the throne and the Lord comes to Solomon. And he offers to give him whatever he asks because of his love for his father, David. Solomon acknowledges that he is young, that he does not know how to be king. He does not know how to run a country. So he asks the Lord to give him wisdom. And God does just that. He gives him wisdom. And Solomon becomes one of, if not the wisest man who ever lived. And that wisdom is displayed in his leading, his governing, and his building a permanent temple for the Lord. A vision that his father David had, and yet now is realized through David's son Solomon. Yet that wisdom that was given to him, that wisdom of leadership, did not preserve Solomon's heart. Acquiring many wives for himself, and I mean many as in like hundreds of wives for himself, and half as many concubines, Solomon's heart was turned away from the one true God of Israel, Yahweh the Lord. Many of those women were pagans, you see, and brought their pagan worship with them to Israel into King Solomon's court. Thus Solomon began sanctioning the building of shrines and altars to the pagan gods of his wives and his concubines. Israel had always been, at least in theory, they had always been called to monotheism, the belief that there is only one God and that God is who you should worship. And now Solomon says, no, it's okay. It's okay. Go ahead and, and worship the gods of your fathers. Worship the pagan gods. 
The result of this serious sin is a division of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom is literally split into two so that the people of Israel now exist as two nations. And though in keeping with his promise to David, David's sons, his descendants, his house still reigns on the throne in Israel, but now it's only over one tribe, the southern tribe of Judah, while the other tribes all go their own way, going farther and farther away from God, having established their own kingship now apart from him. And by the time we get to where we're at now, just a few chapters before, a few years before our text, in 1 Kings 16, we see the rise of King Ahab in the north. And this is what we read about him. This is what, this is what, this is what the author stamps over King Ahab's entire life. King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's not exactly something I would like stamped over my ministry. That Pastor John provoked the Lord to anger more than any other pastors that came before him. That's just not something I would like to be my lasting tribute to known for all time. Yet there it is in black and white for King Ahab. See, Ahab married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. And that very name, Jezebel, as you will, if you read through Kings, you realize becomes synonymous with virtually every, every contemptible evil imaginable. And yet he marries this woman who then imports her own, not just beliefs, pagan beliefs and worship of the, of the false god Baal, but she also brings in her own evangelistic teams from the home front. She brings in her own prophets and her own servants who desire very fervently to spread Baal worship throughout all of the nation of Israel. Ahab himself does not just add in the worship of other gods, but apparently completely gives up worshiping the one true God in favor of worshiping the false god Baal. It is a dark, dark day for Israel, one that one commentator calls a shadow of the Antichrist himself. But then seemingly out of nowhere appears a prophet of the Lord and he is all business. His name is Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God. The Lord is my God. His very name is his calling card, his purpose statement, his vision for ministry. I am Elijah and I am here to call God's people back to God himself. And immediately he walks in before the king, stares him in the face and says, The Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he turns around and leaves. So here is, here is a king who has turned his back on Yahweh, the Lord. He is worshiping Baal. And here a man comes in and says, my name is Elijah. Yahweh is my God. And know this, by his power, rain, dew, moisture of any kind is done for the foreseeable future. And then he turns around and walks away. That's the kind of guy I aspire to be, okay? <laughs> to have that kind of guts and chutzpah like that. Well, this is exactly what happens Ahab, who worships Baal, who you have to understand is the supposed lord of the storm, rain, moisture, all that stuff, uh, is dealt a serious blow here because Elijah wants to make clear Yahweh alone is the one true God. Saying there is no rain is a direct assault on Baal's power. Elijah wants people to know that because the Lord is the only true God, he alone deserves the true worship of his people. And that is the central theme of one kings. And it's what we want to see this morning. In fact, what we need to see is the fact that not only is there one God who is, who is deserving of our true worship, but we also need to understand that just like, just like ancient Israel, so today we live in a culture of rampant idolatry. 
not just outside the church, but also inside the church. And what we need to see this morning is that is simply unacceptable. That is simply unacceptable. There is only one God, and that true God deserves the true worship, not only of His people, but of all the nations. So as we work through our passage this morning, this is what we want to see. We want to see a call back to faithfulness to the one true God. We begin by first seeing the challenge to idolatry. Follow along with me, if you will, chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that is the third year after the drought, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. That's verses 1 through 2. Now verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Because of the drought that was brought upon Israel as a covenant curse for their idolatry, the author tells us that there was a severe famine upon the land of Samaria. This drought had been announced again by Elijah. And so it's not surprising that when Ahab see him, he calls him the troubler of Israel, the one who brought trouble upon this nation. And yet, as Elijah points out, he, the drought is not his fault. It's Ahab's. It's Ahab. Ahab is the real troubler of Israel. It's been his willingness to embrace Baal worship along with his wife Jezebel and the rejection of the Lord that has brought this judgment upon them. Remember who Baal is. Remember who Baal is. We saw him, this, this false god, weeks ago when we looked at the book of Judges. Baal is one of the, the false gods of the Canaanite peoples. God, Baal was the god of fertility whose power was displayed in the storms and the rain. Baal was thought to give abundance to the crops in the field as well as kids in the family. Now, Baal worship would have been attractive to the people of Israel for at least a couple of reasons. First, it was officially sanctioned by the king. You know, it's one thing if your ruler, if the king is saying, no, the worship of the one true God alone, and you're having to like go around and hide and sneak, and you know that if you get caught, you're going to be killed for idolatry, and so you just choose not to do that. But when the king himself says, yeah, sure, fine, worship Baal, who cares? Okay, great, let's worship Baal then. Why not? Let's, let's add some more power into our life, as it were. Second, Baal worship had both history and relevance. Baal worship was not something new. Baal worship was something that had been going on in this land of Canaan even before the people of Israel came a couple hundred years ago and settled there. And yet it was also relevant to their life. After all, this is a people group who rely heavily on farming, on shepherding, on producing crops. And if you are that people who does that, or if you are the other people who depend on those people who do that, then what do you want? You want fertility, right? You want lots of crops. You want big, fat cattle reproducing big, fat cattle. And you want lots of big families to help you work those farms. So Baal worship scratched where they itched. So yet Baal worship also hit the sweet spot of the sinful heart. 
a base desire for sensuality. You see, part of Baal worship was sacred prostitution. You went to the temple, you gave your offering, and then you went into the sacred prostitute and you worshiped with all your glands, hoping Baal would see you, he would get the idea, he would do the same thing with his divine consort wife, Ashtara, and the, the benefit would be that as, as they engaged in divine concubation, that the blessings would flow down and result in fertility for you, your family, and your land. In this regard, Baal worship could be the fastest growing religion in this country today if we could just market it the right way. It appeals exactly where people have sinful cravings. Yet, in the end, Baal worship is simply idolatry. In the end, Baal worship is simply giving worship to a false god instead of the one true God. And it's this open, rampant idolatry that has now brought God's judgment upon His people. But more than judgment, more than judgment, God also displays grace. He is about to end the drought. He's about to send the rains again. But before He does... Before he does, he needs people to understand. He needs the people of Israel to see that he is the one that has done it. That it's not Baal. It's not Baal finally waking up and, and, and producing the fertility that he's supposed to. No, it's the Lord God himself who has done this work. And so God sends Elijah to Israel to help them see the need to renounce Baal and to return to the faithful worship of the one true God. Thus Elijah tells Ahab, get all the false prophets that eat at your wife's table that, that she supports. Get the people of Israel and meet me at Mount Carmel. And when the king and the prophets and the people gather together, Elijah issues the challenge. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. Elijah was calling them out. He was saying you can't give your worship to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, and to Baal. You have to choose. Either the Lord is really who he says he is, the only wise God, or Baal is God. You can't have both. You must choose who you're going to worship and who you're going to follow. And so Elijah establishes the challenge here to Baal worship in such a way that it's not a spectator sport. At the end of the day, people can't, people can't sit back and see what's about to happen and say, yep, Yahweh's a true God. Where are we going out for dinner tonight? I mean, she says, no. No, he says, it doesn't work that way. Worship leads to discipleship. There are consequences to your beliefs. I think that's part of the reason why today we see this, this fervid resurgence of atheism that has been blasting away for the last 10 years. You have people like Richard Dawkins publishing a best-selling book called The God Delusion, where he argues God is both illogical and irrelevant. But then he reveals himself. He reveals the true nature of his passionate pursuit of atheism in kind of a backfiring ploy. You see, Dawkins paid to have these signs put up on buses throughout London, those big red double-deckers that you see. Here's what the sign said. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And everybody said, oh, atheism, atheism, atheism. I said, yeah, but did you, did you catch what he said there? There is probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The hole has suddenly appeared for Dawkins in his worldview. Because first of all, what he's saying is, I'm not really sure there's not a God. There's just probably not a God. But he chooses not to believe. Why? Because he knows belief has consequences. In his sinful mind, it means that if I believe, there will be no joy in my life and lots of worry about keeping God happy. 
That's a pagan view of God, not a biblical view of God. Nevertheless, it shows that he believes there are consequences to belief. If I believe in God, then it's going to make a difference in how I live. And so Dawkins says, I would rather just not believe in God. I'd rather just claim to be an atheist, and that way I don't have to worry about accountability. I don't have to worry about responsibility to a sovereign. And this morning, we need to hear Elijah just as Israel did. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. You say, I don't worship any false gods. Don't be so quick. Don't be so quick to answer that. Just because we don't worship Baal or Asherah or Molech doesn't mean we worship, we worship false gods. We do. We worship a pantheon of false gods. They just go by different names. They go by names like money, beauty, power self-esteem, family, and sex. Pastor Tim Keller explains like this, idolatry is anything I look at and say, if I have that, my life has value. Anything that is so central to your life that you feel you can't live without it is an idol. Idolatry is making a good thing an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with money, beauty, power, self-esteem, family, and sex. It's when those things become so essential to your life that your life loses meaning without them, it's become an idol in your life. And if that's true, and I think it is, then we have today, not just in our culture, but in our church probably, just as many idols as ancient Israel did and as any pagan culture who has ever existed did. This is why Calvin calls the human heart an idol factory. In our sinfulness, we can turn anything into an idol, and we usually do. And therefore, Elijah's challenge is for all of us this morning. Are we going to continue to have our little idols that we keep tucked away where nobody can see them, but trusting them, hoping in them, depending upon them, thinking if we lose them, our life becomes meaningless? Or will we throw them away and say, all I need is the one true God? Will you worship your idols and the Lord, or will you worship the Lord alone? Well, Elijah does not just issue the challenge. He also wants us to see firsthand why the Lord is superior to any idol. So the second thing that we see from 1 Kings chapter 18 is the impotence of false gods. The impotence of false gods. Elijah purposes to put the gods to the test. He says, look, you think Baal is something special. I say there's only one true God, Yahweh the Lord. So let's have a God off. Let's have a contest that proves who is the real God. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Now from a human perspective, Baal is given every advantage here over Yahweh the Lord. First of all, the, the contest is taking place at Mount Carmel, which is most likely a very prominent place of Baal worship. Baal has the home court advantage, as it were. Remember, though, he's also got cheerleaders. Remember, Baal's consort was the goddess Asherah. So not only is there 450 prophets of Baal, but there are also 400 prophets of Asherah there as well. How many prophets of Yahweh are there? One. Elijah himself. 
Still yet, remember that Baal was thought to be the god of fertility, and a sign of his power was storms. Thus, to make the contest about fire coming down from heaven to consume something is like offering to let Baal do what he does best. Yeah, we want to see, we want to see that great lightning come down and, and, and take up the offering. Great. That's Baal's specialty, lightning. And so you can imagine the people, you know, the prophets of Baal are saying, you know, this and this and this. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. And the people of Israel are saying, what is Elijah doing? Is he nuts? I mean, is God, is, is the Lord even going to show up to this contest? It's like everything that Baal does, the, and whatever he does best, this is exactly what we're looking for here. And so everyone agrees to the contest. And Elijah says, great, great. Now you go first, prophets of Baal. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. From morning until noon, the prophets are calling out to Baal. But we read no less than twice. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And Elijah begins mocking them. He says, you know, maybe you should yell louder. Maybe, after all, he could be in deep thought somewhere. He could be sitting. Thinking. Wake him up. Yell louder. Or maybe he's off using the divine restroom, relieving himself. Maybe Baal went on a little vacation. Maybe he's even fallen asleep. Yell louder, O prophets of Baal. Awake your God and cause him to act. And that's what they do. In fact, we read that they keep it up for more hours, screaming with all of their might, even cutting themselves into a bloody mess, hoping it will be some sign of sincerity to bail. But again, we read, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Friends, here's the reality of false gods. They don't exist. They don't exist in the context, we have Baal, but we could put any false god in there and the outcome would be the same. But here's the rub. Though false gods don't exist and are completely powerless in our lives, we still trust them. We still trust them. We still honor them. We still give them worship. Even as God's people, we are often like the Israelites, dividing our worship between God and other idols. And what we need to see is what the people saw this very day between Israel and Ahab and all the prophets of Mount Carmel. False gods are utterly powerless in our lives. We give ourselves to pursuing them with all of our might. We worship them. We believe that they will bring us happiness, but they can't. It is a vain and futile pursuit to think any idol will give us what we need. In fact, we see the opposite here. The prophets of Baal thought that if they just prayed loud enough, if they prayed long enough, if they gave him enough worship, he would serve them. He would send down fire from heaven to burn the sacrifice and vindicate him. But he never came. The result is that instead of being served by Baal, they themselves became enslaved to them, even to the point of desperate self-mutilation to try and get what they wanted. The same is true today. 
The more we see anything as something we need to make us happy apart from God, the more our lives become enslaved to that thing and we become desperate to do anything to get it. But in the end, we find that it's as powerless to help us as Baal was. There is no voice. No one answers. No one pays attention. Picture, picture idolatry being on a raft out in the middle of the ocean. You have no food. You have no water. You're desperate for life. And you realize in the, the intensity of 115 degree heat, you need water. And you realize you're surrounded by water. And so what do you do? You, you, you lift your face into the thing and you begin sucking up the Atlantic Ocean, the salt water. You've been told it's bad for you, but you know you've got to have water. And so your body begins to react to the salt water. Your balance gets out of whack. So now you begin to have swelling on your brain. Your muscles begin not to respond as they should. You become to get dehydrated. And you begin to think, I need more water. And so you begin to suck up more salt water. And again, the swelling increases on your brain. Your muscles become even more lax. You become more dehydrated, more thirsty. In the end, you kill yourself thinking this water is going to save you when in fact it's only killing you. That's, that's the reality of false gods. That's the reality of idols in our life. Ask any person who is addicted. They think if they can just get the next hit, if they can just have the next sip of alcohol, they will be happy and they will do anything to get it. But in the end, it only makes them miserable. It only brings them harm. It only brings them destruction in their lives. They become enslaved to it, but it can never do anything for them. It can never save them. Nevertheless, there is one who is not powerless in our lives. There is one whose power extends to all things. One who will always satisfy us. One who can bring salvation. Though false gods are powerless, the one true God isn't. And this is the last thing that we want to see this morning. The glory of the true God. The glory of the true God. The prophets of Baal have had their go and their God has been found wanting. And now it's Elijah's turn. And in calling on his God, Yahweh, the Lord, we see the glory of the true God. And we see it in three ways. First, we see that the Lord is a God who preserves his people. He is a God who preserves his people. Verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Though the formal worship of the offering of sacrifices was supposed to be confined to the tabernacle and then the temple, Israel had in the past built these small little altars all dotted around the countryside, usually in high places that they might worship privately. But when Jezebel and her prophets came in, such altars were destroyed in favor of ones set up by Baal. And literally what you have here is Elijah going to Mount Carmel where there is a known high place for Baal worship. And a former altar of Yahweh knocked over on the floor. And he begins to go and rebuild the broken altar and he does so intentionally. It says he takes 12 stones. 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel in order to rebuild the temple. You cannot miss the symbolism here. God is saying through Elijah, despite the division that has come because of your sin, despite your worship of the false gods, I desire you to be my people again, united again as the 12 tribes, as the people of God, the nation of Israel that I called you to be. I am willing to forgive. I am willing to heal. I am willing to restore you even now. 
your former glory. And this morning, as we sit here today, the same God who preserved his people and extended forgiveness to them makes the same offer to us. Even as Christians who have proclaimed that we worship Christ alone and we have failed giving our worship to idols instead, God offers to forgive. To those of us who have never truly proclaimed Christ as our Savior, to those of us who have never truly given all of our worship to the one true God, God also says, put away your idols, repent of your sin, and likewise, I will be your God. I will forgive you and I will save you from your sins. God only preserves his people, but God has power over all things. God has power over all things. Verse 32. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. Elijah builds up that altar the way he should with the 12 stones. And he lays down the wood. Then he puts on the sacrifice. And then he says, you know what? Just for good measure, dump some water on it. Not just a little bit of water, dump a lot of water on it. Go down to the sea and get four jars of water and do it three times. Douse this thing. Because what you need to understand, what you need to understand, Israel, is that this is not, this is not Baal suddenly coming awake. This is not some act of luck or some freak of nature. This is about to be a demonstration of the living God's power in your life. So he just, he douses the thing with water. So much so, the entire thing is sopping wet to the point that a moat has formed around it on the ground. It is not only covered with water, it is also surrounded by water. Some stray spark of flint is not going to set this thing off. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, The Lord... He is God. The Lord, He is God. Such is the power of God. He doesn't just take the offering up in fire. He consumes every last bit of this altar that people shouldn't have even raised in the first place. And every last drop of water put near it, all that was thought to be in Baal's territory. And he didn't have to be roused by dancing and prancing and yelling and bloodletting by hundreds of fervent devotees. It was simply one man who prayed. One man who asked the living God to reveal his glory to his people and the nations. And the reality is that while idols are powerless to give us anything, the one true God has the power to do everything. In fact, Paul prays in Ephesians in the New Testament. He writes to the Ephesians, he says, He prays to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. You think you can think of something so incredible God can't do it? God says, I can do, I can do even better than that. My power extends infinitely beyond anything you can ask or think. The one true living God is one who preserves his people he is powerful over all things, and yet he is also a God who punishes sin. He is a God who punishes sin. Verse 40. Elijah said to the people of Israel, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 
Now, here's where most preachers and commentators display their tell. You know what I'm talking about? In cards, everyone virtually has a tell. They have some small indicator, might be scratching their face, might be blinking a lot, might be that little smile that creeps up that they can't hide. But it's something that lets you know they've either got a really good hand or they've got a really bad hand. It's their tell. And this verse, this kind of verse, verses like this all throughout the Bible, this is the tell for the pastor or the scholar for the preacher. It's, it's an indication how they deal with it is what they really think about God and his word. You see, some will say Elijah wasn't told to do this. He just got carried away in the fervor of the moment. Others say it's just another example of the unenlightened religious views of ancient peoples. What will we say about it? Simply this. It's exactly what God wanted done. Deuteronomy 18 says very clearly that anyone who would lead others into idolatrous worship was to be put to death. Deuteronomy is part of the covenant by which God's people are to live. Elijah wasn't doing anything he wasn't supposed to do. He was doing exactly what was commanded by God. Some still think, this is harsh, it's too harsh, it slaughters these people. Just like the sacrifice. But bear in mind what we're seeing here. It's not just some capricious issuing of capital punishment. What we're seeing is a picture of the future. We are seeing a picture of the just judgment of God against sin that will one day consign sinners to an eternity in hell being brought forward into the future as an echo of what is to come. The reality of who God is becomes all the more clear in this verse. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is a God who will not tolerate sin. Because He's an infinitely holy God, even the smallest of sins must be judged. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God provides a way to be forgiven. Because all of us are sinners. All of us have committed sin. All of us deserve the eternity in hell. And yet God comes and offers forgiveness. Here, God sends down fire that consumes the entire altar. If you've been keeping up reading along with us, you'll realize he's done this only twice before in the history of Israel. The first time was when Aaron and his, and his sons were first commissioned to be priest over Israel. The first sacrifice is offered at the tabernacle. And God comes down and consumes the thing in its entirety. And then that tabernacle system that was then approved by God goes on into the future. David has this idea of building the temple. He's told, no, your son will do it. Nevertheless, David goes and he buys a field to pay for the place where one day the temple will stand in honor of the living God that he loves and that he worships and who is due the glory that is of his name. He builds another altar and offers a sacrifice. And again, God comes down and consumes the entire thing. He is saying that this tabernacle, this system of forgiveness for sins that I have established will continue on into this temple that David's son will believe. And so now, so now here we see the same thing happening again. The fire is coming down and consuming all of the sacrifice that has been offered. And God is saying to Israel then, he is saying to them, I am willing even now to receive you back. I am not willing that you be destroyed, that you be judged for your sins like these false prophets. I am willing to provide a way of escape for forgiveness. And I've already made provision through it, through the temple and its sacrifices. Go back to worshiping me alone. Offer them in faith, trusting me as the one true God who alone is able to forgive your sins. And I will do it. I will forgive you. 
more than that for us today. We see in that promise of those sacrifices the greater promise that one day those sacrifices would end. Not because God is less willing to save, but because the final sacrifice has been offered. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who came as the one true sacrifice to be offered up to the one true God as the payment for our sins. So that by him, all men everywhere might be able to receive forgiveness from God. Not just one group in the nation of Israel that people may come and may hear about God, but no, now the good news goes to all nations, that all people may see Christ and what God has done in offering him, and they may come to have forgiveness and sins. This morning, our text is driving us to see the idolatry in our hearts. It's futility and our sinfulness. Our text is driving us to look at Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ, the one true Lord. We need to see His power and His holiness. Then we need to let the text drive us to look at Christ who came as the sacrifice by which we can be forgiven and freed from our sinful idolatry. Look to Christ and you will see not an impotent God who is unable to make good on His promises, but the very Glory of God in the flesh. In Christ you will find a Savior that above anything else you can treasure and find in Him joy and love and life. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, you will find that there is nothing else that can satisfy. So this morning I ask you, how long, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. Follow Father, as we come before you this morning, having heard this text, we realize that in many ways, Father, this event occurs in our life every day. Father, every day we are faced with this challenge to choose between you, the one true and living God, and a multitude of false gods that exist in our lives and in our hearts. Father, I pray that this morning that you would be at work helping us to, true, to choose you. The Father, to see you truly as you are, as the only true God, and to see what you have done for us through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, and know that you alone have the power to satisfy and to save. And so, Father, in light of that, help us to trust in you and in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.